So James, I loved our talk today with Eugene. It's uh, very rare that we get an attorney on the podcast. Yeah. And uh, it, they, conversations with attorneys can get a little bit taxing, but I think our listeners are really going to get some, um, you know, actionable information out of this. Yeah, definitely. And, I love how I love how you kind of directed the conversation much more this one for the agent. So yes. I think whether you're an ISO thinking about your agent relationships or you're an agent thinking about you know your agreements and your the structure of the industry, I thought Eugene did a fantastic job breaking down the the risks and associated yes. with that. And then your segment, um, your questions from the field, I thought was really spot on this week as well. Thank you. you. Yeah. Something about that. Yeah. I've just been really, uh, in some ways frustrated actually with some of the, um, consulting clients I'm working with the different things of just kind of this idea of just going out and prospecting and, you know, the world has changed and there's new ways to do prospecting that actually are much more effective than some of the old ways. And so I just lay out a really specific plan that I think everyone will agree will work better. The question is, are you going to execute on it? And that's what I talk about. Yeah. And I think it's a really great plan. I think people probably should execute on it if they're smart. Uh, We'll see. Most of the people that listen to us are. So yeah. So Uh, we should have a good result. And then my question, uh, excuse me, my uh, insider's report is on um, PayPal's new attempt at a stable coin. And um, James and I talk about that. I think you'll find that interesting. And James? Yeah. And then, uh, of course, I always like to give my little disclaimer. Uh, in this one, we're interviewing uh, Eugene and uh, Rome LLP. Uh, those, they don't sponsor us. They're not paid advertising, consulting, anything like that. And so with that being said, let's dive into this interview with Eugene. Welcome to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Well, everybody, James and I are here today with uh, my new friend, Eugene. Eugene, how are you doing today? I'm doing really well. How are you, Patty? I'm doing wonderful. Thank you for uh, for joining us. This is great because, you know, James, you and I have talked a lot about products and strategies. Yes. We don't have a lot of lawyers on. No, we don't. No, we don't. So and a lot I, of times yeah. we've been known to say, I am not a lawyer, but. <laughs> right, right. Maybe it's time we have some more legal professionals that can say, I am right, an attorney. So right. So when Eugene uh, reached out to me, I thought, oh, what an excellent opportunity. Sure. And uh, so thank you. I really appreciate it, Eugene. Um, just for our folks, um, I know Eugene has a law practice in uh, California. That's and right. I asked him here today specifically because we want to talk about risk. You know, we all know there's a lot of risk in the payment system, um, in payment processing, as well as issuancing. And, you know, different parties have different pr- risk profiles and ways to mitigate risk. But before we get into all that, Eugene, can you just give us sort of like a a brief uh, synopsis of your uh, your professional background and what brought you to payments in the first uh, of place? Of course, happy to do it. I've been a lawyer for now nearly twenty years, which is a daunting amount of time. Daunting uh, indeed. Particularly for me, uh, flew by. Uh, what brought me to payments was uh, a job with a, an attorney who had a, at the time a smaller payments uh, practice. I handled one case, next case, then when I went out on my own, same thing happened. One case turned into two, two into turned into ten, turned into really dozens of clients across the spectrum, from ISOs to agents to banks in some instances to mm-hmm. just a lot of merchants uh dealing with just a spectrum of uh processing issues, both yeah. transactional litigation wise. Um, so yeah, we've, uh, a very substantial portion of our practice is dedicated to this kind of work. 
You know, it's, I think it's because also, you know, Eugene and James, you can chime in here, but there's so few lawyers that understand this space yeah. that when somebody finds somebody who does. The word spreads, you know. Word yeah. spreads really quick. Yeah, so. Eugene, Eugene, it's so interesting too. It's like our industry, we have the all these like interconnected parties between, you know, the visa agreements and how they, you know, cascade down and then you have the the sponsor bank and then you have, you know, it's just crazy all of the layers, you know. So I'm glad yeah. you touched on that. And one thing that we see routinely is business lawyers handling payment processing cases. And I'm not looking to disparage such lawyers. In fact, some of them are spectacular attorneys. Mm -hmm. The only problem is they don't really understand the interplay between the card brand rules and best practices. And then the risk factors between ISOs, acquirers, and obligations uh, to the card brands running right. back and forth. Right. And so what happens is they will litigate cases, just business practitioners, from just a business standpoint. It'll be breach of contract, you know, maybe some kind of claim for unpaid uh, funds, but they don't deal in a robust fashion with the standards set out by uh, Visa and MasterCard rigs. And a lot of times that's a tremendous disservice to the parties they're representing. So a lot of times we come into a case that comes to us from a large firm with really smart attorneys, really good lawyers that uh -huh. simply have not practiced in this very esoteric space right and uh certain things do not get addressed you know on our end we get uh, experts involved very early in our cases even though we have a wealth of expertise but on certain things we find that having someone who's done nothing but payments but from the business side from the corporate side rather right. than the right. legal side isn't valuable and we have a lot of relationships with capable experts in the space and so you're right. It is a very unique space and the interplay of all of these items mm -hmm. makes it such that you really want someone who understands them all representing you, especially in a matter that might be somewhat nuanced, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's get to our discussion. I really want to, I'm really eager to discuss this with you, um, risk. Okay. And, um, I want to differentiate between merchant risk, which we talk about a lot. That's mostly like fraud type things and agent risk. Um, and I'm wondering if you can maybe address for us um, some of the risks that agents face um, when they, you know, put applications in and even after that, you know, in terms of their agreements with ISOs. Uh, happy to do that. Mm -hmm. I suppose agents face risk and risk is a very broad word but they would face risk both uh from the up the chain players and from the down the chain players mm -hmm. and what I, might, what I mean by that is the following suppose you have just colloquially speaking an agent a merchant comes forward and says look i want to do fifty thousand dollars a month in a business the person's materials check out their um proposed sales the items they want to sell check out the underwrite them and they bore, uh, they submit the application to an ISO with whom they have a, an agreement and um, they start processing. Suddenly it turns out that the merchant is not whom they represent themselves to be. They sell a different product or perhaps they sell it through means that are different than what they suggested they would. And the question becomes who's responsible? Well, the responsibility Obviously, at the 
very high level, the acquirer would be responsible because if all of the sales turn out to be fraudulent and um, the customers start charging back, it's the acquirer that's on the hook. Acquirer, of course, would have an agreement with the ISO that uh, makes the ISO responsible. The ISO, in turn, would have some form of an agreement with the agent, and that's where the agent risk uh, comes into play. And in that situation, it becomes a question of, well, what's the risk? Is the agent contractually on the hook for uh, any kind of shortfalls experienced by the bank as a result of the merchant activity? Mm -hmm. Is the agent insulated from that by the terms of the contract where all the risk passes to the ISO, where the agent says, look, all I do is find potential merchants. I do not guarantee that they're forthright actors. All I'm doing is collecting prospects for you, the ISO. I'm collecting some of their information. I'm collecting uh, documents that you have told me to collect. I'm putting that packet together. I'm sending it to you. And I, the agent, make absolutely no guarantees about the validity of these materials. You, the ISO, are far better equipped to vet out the merchant. And so that's entirely on you. Is that and, that is something that needs to be contractually negotiated? Absolutely. The yes. contract really is the starting point for all mm -hmm. relationships between the agent and the ISO who would be looking to the agent, presumably right. in the event that things go sideways. Right. Um, of course, the other extreme of that is that the entirety of the risk is placed upon the, um, the agent by the ISO, in which case the agent is fully responsible for all of the merchant's transgressions. Mm -hmm. And in fact, at times I've seen it where instances where the merchant's transgressions, uh, well, let me take a step back. As we know, the agent receives a small sliver of what everyone in the up chain, uh, in the processing chain makes. So then let's say they get uh, 1%. However, if, and this is again, an extreme scenario, but if the merchant does, let's say $100,000 a month in volume, and let's say the whole 100,000 of it is fraud and it's all chargebacks or even 50% of it, you get into a situation where the agent becomes responsible, assuming they carry all risk for that merchant, but they become responsible for far more of the damage that merchant causes to the ISO and the acquirer than the agent ever stood to gain from that relationship, assuming zero chargebacks and everything goes fully above board. And certainly there are situations where, um, where the agent is viewed to be responsible, whether contractually or otherwise, and the ISO starts debiting or holding back the agent's residuals on, on, on from, all on all of their accounts on all of right. them. on all accounts yeah and that's something that you know experienced agents certainly take into account when initially contracting and so they consider it that goes into their analysis of what kind of merchants they're going to bring in it goes into the, their analysis of what kind of contracts they sign. Um, but certainly I could see how uh, someone new to the space, someone who certainly goes into it without any initial or even subsequent intent to do anything untoward could be taken advantage of both by a merchant who sees a weak agent that might overlook some 
red flags mm-hmm. and correspondingly by the ISO who shifts all risk to that agent and then um, one bad apple, so to speak, from the merchant portfolio may create a situation where the agent really stops getting paid on all other legitimately referred merchants. Right. And that's a really tough reality, especially yeah. for agents who, you know, just talking about bargaining power and also scope of operations, agents tend to be one or two person shops, three person shops. They do not have the robust tools that ISOs, and certainly there are some really large ISOs with really comprehensive and elaborate uh, technological solutions and just manpower. They can vet out the merchants far better than an agent could. An agent could be just someone who thinks, look, I've got a list of potential uh, merchants. got a warm hand. Yeah, and I will (laughs) make some calls. sell it something. Yeah. 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 And so... They just they're they're often truly not equipped to delve that deeply into emergence operations to really figure out whether they're an above board player or not. But if they're not well protected, contractually speaking, then they can get stuck for quite a bit of the damage flowing from emergence sales and other operations. Well, yeah, and it's like your your example of, you know, you have a $100,000 a month merchant. And I think for those that are maybe newer to the industry, you know, they may not understand this concept of, you know, there's a merchant processing $100,000 in, in transactions. Well, if all of those transactions, to your point, are fraudulent, well, the merchant, the, the agent may only be making 1% or $1,000 a month residual, which is actually a pretty good residual on a $100,000 a month account. Maybe that's on a, a dual pricing or something, but they're <laughs> making $1,000, but there's $100,000 in total risk. And so who's on the hook for that? Now, one thing that would be helpful, I think, Eugene, for our audience, uh, for those who maybe aren't as familiar with even the concept of a high risk account. Yeah. Can you yeah. can you can you maybe define a little bit of like when we're talking about these merchants that are creating this risk? What is a high risk merchant? Maybe give us a couple of the key um, driving factors that make a merchant a higher risk to whoever is on the hook for that risk. Sure, happy to do it. By the way, I'm glad you asked because the term high risk merchant is not something that's specifically exactly right. anyone. Right, right. It's right. and I've uh, in advance uh, in preparation for my call with you, I looked over what some processors, what some industry commentators have um, have described as a high risk merchant, and as expected, the definition varies. Yeah, um, right. You know, a high risk merchant simply. Very, at a basic, very basic level, is a merchant that presents significant risk to the processor or a bank. Significant means just increased. So right. certainly sure. anyone doing business online to me without a brick and mortar, I think would present an instance of elevated risk. Brick and mortar, you know, let's say you have a shoe store. Well, presumably there's assets there. There's a live person. That business is not going right. to Right, you're not just selling overnight. it over internet right? well they won't disappear overnight and also with such a merchant you an aggrieved customer can actually walk in and right. attempt a return say, say these shoes don't fit <laughs> you know well that's exactly the case right. so right. uh you know the chargebacks which is what the processors and banks really care about would be a last resort and my expectation is that with brick and mortar merchants unless they're doing something truly exotic um Chargebacks are not a significant issue unless there really is something unique. But I think that would be an outlier. Anything done online is um, 
a bit more risky because a lot of times and not often, but sometimes you don't know who the ultimate seller is. People uh, offer goods and services through a number of outlets. A lot of times they use affiliate networks who also, sure. as you might know, contract with various publishers. The publishers sometimes engage in advertising practices that are just not what the merchant ever wanted them to do. In fact, not what the affiliate network ever wanted them to do. And um, that increases risk. Um, but otherwise, it could be just uh, a merchant that sells items at a very high uh, dollar per transaction uh, like a jewelry store it could be a jewelry store it could be an electronics vendor right electronics it, i was thinking of that yeah yeah it could be just about anything where if there is a kind of persistent issue the risk of exposure is significant mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um so i can't say that it's necessarily um confined to a particular industry Right. Certainly, you know, but certainly see... you wouldn't expect like a pizza shop to have a lot of chargebacks, right? I mean, no, you would not. Once you've eaten the meal, what can you do? <laughs> you know? Right. You can call and complain, leave a bad review. Yeah, leave a bad yeah. review, but you're not going to get your money well, back. I, well, I think, and I think the other thing, Eugene, that's interesting about this is we're obviously we're talking here about financial risk, right? So there's obviously there are certain verticals that pose reputational risk, right? Right. The the you know, well, I, we don't want to deal with CBD. We don't want to deal with um, you know, adult or entertainment whatever. or Guns. whatever. Right. Right. But I think, I think it's, uh, yeah, from a financial risk perspective, it's about the chargebacks, right? The, the other one I was thinking of Eugene that does to pop up a lot would be business types that, um, you know, sell things, but they take payment up front, you know, travel agency, right. Things like that, yeah. where they're and higher risk, you know, there's a lot of money hanging out there that hasn't really been, they haven't provided services for the money that they've received. You right. Know? And no one would view, you know, the sale of Delta plane tickets as something that would be a reputationally speaking problematic, right. but right. flights are high risk for the very reason you described. You know, right. you buy a ticket for $10,000 to go first class somewhere, things change yep. in the half a year that you have right. between the time that you bought the ticket and when the flight is. Mm -hmm. Can't return them because the rules are very, very uh, stringent on. I think you can really cancel your flight acquisition only within uh, the first 24 hours unless you have a fully refundable ticket, which are right. astronomically expensive typically. And right. so, you know, the people that feel, look, I'm not going on that trip. I, yep. I want my money back. Right. They might be inclined to. That's why they have travel insurance. Yeah. They might be inclined no. to just call and initiate some chargeback that's totally right. invalid. You know, yeah. you know, it's so funny. I was not going to share. I had no intention of sharing this. I'm wondering today, if you were going to share that story. Go <laughs> ahead. So it's so funny, Eugene, you just bring up Delta tickets, first class. So my wife and I just went to Boston for our 16th wedding anniversary. And I was the one that arranged the travel for reasons passing understanding. I did not have my assistant do it, which is always a mistake. And we get to the airport to leave. And I have first class Delta tickets, as you point out, very expensive, you know. And uh, yeah, I get to the airport and they won't check us in. And I'm really frustrated. And and finally, I'm showing my wife and, and she looks at it and realizes that the date that I booked them for was actually the previous day. <laughs> oh my so I'm at the airport <laughs> with my wife trying to get back home to our kids. And I actually don't have plane tickets. So it's actually interesting because it, this is a great example of, hey, there's thousands of dollars there that I'm going to be reaching out to 
Delta to try and get my money back. They may refuse. Do I file right. a charge back or do I just accept the fact that I was really stupid? Um, right. And so all of a sudden there's a financial risk to the processor that, hey, I'm, I might want my money back on on this stupidity or or because of right. maybe something else that changes. But um, yeah, it's it's true. There's there's definitely that advantage. Yeah. So I had to share that because I just no, brought I, Delta I, first class I, tickets. I, I, I had to, when I saw know. he posted this on Facebook the other day, Eugene, and when I saw yeah. it, I just laughed. It was very funny. Yes. yes. Hey, let's turn to the merchants um, level sales reps. OK, I sure. would um, like to know from you, Eugene, having been somebody that's looked over a lot of contracts and worked with a lot of ISOs and agents. What other than, I mean, you know, we, we discussed one of the potential problem, but what are some of the problematic clauses that you've seen that you think agents should avoid when signing an agreement with an ISO? Okay. So we're tabling the question of risk. So just to button that up, uh, yeah. obviously I would be looking. Well, at I wouldn't totally table the question of risk because I think that this kind of ties in with that. It does. Um, so first things first. Of course, okay. uh, I would want to make sure that the agent understands what they're taking on. And it could be, it doesn't have to be all or nothing because mm -hmm. some right. processors might say, look, or ISOs might say, we simply don't need you. If you're saying you're just going to submit applications and take zero accountability, but it could be 10%, 50%, 30%, or it could be up to a certain dollar amount, or it mm -hmm. could be confined to your residuals for that merchant, uh -huh. as opposed to your residuals. All, all across so that you know you mm -hmm. submit a bad merchant you won't get paid on that merchant and that's fair but for it to impact everyone else and all your other funds might be problematic okay pivoting away from the the allocation of that risk issue um i think the first thing would be exclusivity and i don't think that an agent uh, should ever sign an exclusive deal i think um I don't know what the benefit would be, maybe somewhat better rates, but then you are beholding, beholden to that particular ISO. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if there is an expectation in the industry that uh, merchant level sales group only writes to a particular ISO. Um, so that would be one thing. I would also tell the, well, recommend to the agent to scrutinize the Schedule A look mm -hmm. at the markups, look at what fees are being shared because it may well be, suppose you have a 50-50 deal with an ISO. That seems fair, but then you start looking really closely and you know the cost to an ISO of a chargeback might be, let's say $6. Uh, the ISO charges 26 or 36. So they get that $30 uh, amount based on the number of anticipated chargebacks or actual chargebacks. Um, in the event of a merchant that experienced a lot of them, that could be a substantial uh, revenue source for the ISO. Mm -hmm. But that Schedule A may also say that we will not share any of our uh, chargeback fees with you or our ACH reject fees. Or in other words, there may be fees that are carved out where you're confined only to the buy rate. And uh, I'm not saying there's anything wrong or right with it, because uh -huh. these are business relationships. So the idea is you have some freedom to negotiate a contract. There's nothing against public policy here. Right. But I would suggest that if people say, well, let's go 50-50 and you go, sounds great, send the agreement and the agent signs it uh, without looking at it, they might not be truly realizing 
50% of what the ISO really makes on that relationship. Right. Well, I, and I think it's interesting too, it, Eugene, it kind of goes back to exclusivity, right? Because, you know, that mistake is a bad mistake. If it's an exclusive deal, it's a really bad mistake because mm -hmm. now you are exclusive. I, I think in my experience, the only time I've seen exclusivity make any sense is if you're an ISO that's really trying to scale up and grow, well, you might do a financial deal with an upstream partner where they're like, hey, we're going to invest a million dollars or whatever to, for you to build your ISO. But obviously, we want you to bring all your deals to us or at least first right of refusal. But I think, yeah, to your point beyond that, if you're an individual agent, be careful. You sign that exclusivity. Next thing you know, like, you know, most agreements Eugene have, you know, they can change whatever they want. Right. Like, and so you're exclusive. That's a problem, you know? Yeah. 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 And consider maybe the initial term um, for which you're signing, because right. again, mm -hmm. if it's an untested partner, maybe don't go the full three years, maybe do it for a year and see how that shakes out. Right. Um, the other uh, item that I think of, agents should really think about are residuals. Well, yeah. And, and again, that kind of comes to our risk topic, doesn't it? Sure. But what I mean by that is not purely, you know, how much are they getting and what percentage they're getting, but the question of how long are they going to get them for? What's the risk of losing the residuals? Yeah. Right. And I mean, it could be a perfectly innocuous reason in other words there could be just a personality clash you know between in other words where the agent has done nothing wrong and the iso has done nothing wrong and the two of them look at each other and say we don't want to do business together anymore and the contract terminates let's say the first term expired whether it's a year or three years whatever the case may be well the merchants that were referred are still with that iso so the iso is making money and and the question becomes well shouldn't the party, the agent that refer them, collect some percentage of that profit? Mm -hmm. And does the percentage change after termination? That's an open question. Again, mm -hmm. one to be dictated by contract. Mm -hmm. And equally, if say the percentage remains static, but the question then is, well, for how long do they get paid? Is it a lifetime of the merchant? Is it mm -hmm. only 12 months? Is it something different? Um, is there a right to a buyout? If there is one, at what amount? Uh, so all of that can be addressed by a contract. But the point is, you really have to think through not just what's immediate. Look, uh, you know, I as the agent, I sign this piece of paper. I'm going to refer merchant A. Merchant A is going to do some sales and I'll get my, let's hope, 1%. And that's that. Well, you, you, you really should think through the eventualities of what happens when the relationship does not go the way it was planned. Or what happens when the merchant doesn't behave the way the merchant was intended to behave or said it would behave? Um, what happens if I just want to stop doing business with that ISO? Um, or what if what happens if I, as the agent, want to sell my portfolio? And that's actually another interesting question, the portability of residuals, so to speak. Mm -hmm, right. Mm -hmm. Some agreements I've, said, I've seen, uh, they stipulate that if there's a change in control or if there's a sale, then the contract terminates and kind of all bets are off. So the ISO stays with all the, ref keeps all the referred merchants. Right. They realize now all the profit that right. they now no longer have to share. So I think as an agent, to some degree, you have to maybe not even contemplate the prospect of doing a sale of your portfolio of residuals, which by the way, are very valuable. Right. But um, it certainly wouldn't hurt to, 
say, look, even though I might not be wanting to leave the industry or sell my portfolio, but a contract that provides favorable terms in the event of a sale is just more valuable. Yeah, yeah, like I, yeah, especially I, especially in an industry where that happens so much. You know, our industry right. is private equity firms are buying and rolling up companies, and everybody's being acquired and sold. And so I think the idea, a lot of agents, Eugene will tell me, you know, oh, I I I know Bill over at this company, and I shook his hand, and we're yeah. you know, and then I just signed the agreement, we're good. And it's like, well, hold on a minute, yeah, yeah. Gonna, Bill's not going to have anything to do with that company in three years because they're going to sell to a private equity firm, and Bill's going to retire. So, and that's exactly it. And when private yeah. equity comes in, the only thing they'll be looking at is their bottom line. They won't know yeah. the agent. They won't care that Bill right. used to have drinks with that agent every Friday night and their kids right. went to baseball camp together. And this how, happens. Do, how do we how do we increase EBITDA? That is the only right. question they will. That is that's the, the question, only right, and right. that is the only question. And um, yeah, yeah, look. And, it, you, you have to anticipate that. I mean, I don't think there should be any kind of sentiment ascribed to it. I think people act in their yeah. financial interests. And certainly the agent has the right to do the same exact thing. Right. Uh, much and as I think ISOs. that's like the bottom line, most excellent piece of advice that, that our listeners can get from this today, um, James, is that, you know, you really have to be careful of what you get yourself into. Yeah. And... You should read those contracts, and if you're lucky enough to know a lawyer, maybe have them read them as well before yeah. you sign them. Yeah. Uh, J James, I think we kind of covered the other questions. So absolutely. I was wondering if you wanted to do a wrap. Yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. And, and so, Eugene, I mean, obviously, we keep talking about this for, for another hour, but we better not do that today. But, uh, Eugene, this has been super interesting. I've actually, I you know, we didn't know each other before the podcast interview, so it's really been nice just talking to you, getting to know you. Likewise. I know a lot of our listeners are always looking for an attorney in the industry. They're in very short supply, as we discussed. Where would people go if they want to learn more about you and uh, inquire about your practice? Sure. Uh, they can visit our website, uh, romellp.com. So it's R-O-M-E-L-L-P.com. And they can email me directly at erome at romellp.com. The law firm's Rome LLP. Um, awesome. We're around. <laughs> so Eugene, thank you. This has really been helpful. I know... That when you and I first spoke, I was like kind of all over the place and you helped me narrow down our, our discussion. And I think it's been a really fruitful discussion. So thank you. Likewise, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. Hey, everybody. So just want to put a little plug in for an event I've got coming up. Um, I will have information more for this, but you can go to ccsalespro.com slash Nativia to learn more about this. But our sponsor, Nativia Banking, I'm going to be doing a special live event where we're going to be talking about um, ISO banking. Now, this is really going to be a cool event. I'm interviewing Vlad. I'm interviewing Izzy from uh, over there in TV. And what we're going to be talking about is for agents and ISOs. So they have this opportunity. I'm not going to, I don't want to do like to spoil the whole thing or, or whatever, but the idea is when you are managing your residuals through Nativia's banking app, because they're so familiar with the industry, not only do they have unique tools and give you cash back rewards and all that, but they're also working on rolling out programs for access to capital at a oh, really, wow. really affordable rate. And so, you know, historically it's been, you got to sell your residuals mm -hmm. or this type of thing. And so Nativia is working on solutions to that. And so we're going to touch on that in this event. So say that one more time, ccsalesforce.com slash N-E-T-E-V-I-A, Nativia. Yes. So Nativia. check it out and uh, yeah, get registered for that event. And then uh, we'll uh, talk more about it then. I'm looking forward to it. This is Questions from the Field, brought to you by ccsalespro.com the leader in merchant sales training and technology. If you're an individual merchant sales professional, 
visit ccsalespro.com forward slash training to get a free 14-day trial of our all-access pass. If you manage a team of merchant sales professionals, visit ccsalespro.com forward slash ISO to learn how we can help you grow. And now, here is Questions from the Field with James Shepard. So, Patty, today I want to talk about campaign marketing. Um, oh, excellent topic. Yeah, so um, I have something really exciting coming. I, I I don't know when this one is going to air. I think it'll air pretty soon. So probably in a few weeks after this uh, podcast airs, uh, I'm doing some new YouTube videos that are going to be like nothing I've ever done. So I actually have uh, hired a new um, full-time person to basically follow me around in the field, a couple, you know, three or four days a week in the mornings, and I'm going to go sell payment processing. Oh, you were and, talking about this. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. So as I've been planning that, and, you know, I've been – um, asking a lot of of the kind of questions that the agents ask me, which, you know, in consulting clients, which is, okay, I'm going to go sell a merchant. Who am I going to sell? What am I going to sell to them? How am I going to get in contact with them? How Right. So just very basic questions that when you go to execute them, it's just so interesting to me because Patty, the, the one of the trends I've noticed that I think is so important for our listeners is that if it feels like prospecting is getting harder you're not imagining it. It is mm. getting harder. Yeah, um, I've been is. back out in the field and I was out in the field 12 years ago and, and it is harder. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, now can it still be done? Absolutely. Are there people who are absolutely killing it? Absolutely. Right. And, and yes, it can definitely be done in a general way of walking into businesses off the street. I still believe in that. And I think it's, especially, it's a great way to get started in the industry and to get data about your market and all of that. But as far as how I personally, you know, believe in making sales, mm-hmm. um, no, uh, the way I believe in making sales is with campaign marketing. And I did this way back in the day as well. I figured out really quickly that it just works a lot better for me. And so let me explain what I mean by campaign marketing. And I'm going to give everybody a very simple roadmap of exactly what you do to make this work. Okay. Um, that this is not a, this is not an extremely valuable idea. This is a really valuable execution. And mm-hmm. if you can execute this, it's, you'll understand it instantly when I explain it to you. But if you can execute on it, you can make a lot of money. So number one is you choose a specific segment of the market that you want to target with a campaign. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, choose that segment based on either business type or based on solution, right? So you may have a certain solution that you say, this is a good solution for you know, these three types of businesses. Um, or you may have something that says, um, you know, I'm going to go after bars or I'm going to go after whatever, right? A certain business type. And so, you know, you, you first pick that, make sure you have the right solution, the right partner for the solution, the technology, that the payments is fully integrated into it. You make sure you have a streamlined, you know, sign up process. Right, right. Check the boxes to make sure it's a seamless experience for you and for your merchants and that you understand the experience, right? right. Mm-hmm. Then the next thing you're going to do is, you're going to create a free bit of educational content, okay, that you can share with these people that's going to be valuable to them, mm-hmm. okay? Valuable to them. That's very, very important. And so if you're going to go after, um, oh, I don't know, let's say you're going to go after pizza shops, which is one of my favorites, um, you might make something called um, five, you know, five dangers of choosing a pizza shop POS system or, um, you know, three hidden costs in pizza shop payments or mm-hmm. 
whatever. So you can go like yeah. a negative direction like that of dangers or risks or, or you can go in a positive yeah. way. And mm -hmm. yeah, you know, three keys to efficiency, whatever. So um, you come up with that, with that. Then what you do is when you cold call on the business type, in this case, a pizza shop, right. you can call them over the phone. You can walk in either way. But the, the pitch is, hey, I work specifically with pizza shops. I provide point of sale solutions. And so I'm a local business. My success depends on the success of the local pizza shops in the area. So I created a free resource for local pizza shops. And the only reason I'm calling you today or the only reason I'm stopping by today is I wanted to give you that free resource and see if you'd have a chance to take a look at it. I know you're going to get some value from it. That's it. That's your opening pitch. Now, uh -huh. what you're going to find when you do that is that your closing rate is going to be 25%, 30%. You know, if you're in person, it's going to be 50%. Um, and, you know, when you're talking to people and you basically say, I want to give you a free ebook and it's about your business, um, they're going to say yes. And uh, that's the only reason you're there. Um, they're going to say yes. And then when they say yes, you get the email address, you share that with them. Okay. Next step is you see if they engage with that. Okay. And you can do that in any email system, MailChimp, HubSpot, whatever you're going to use, um, constant contact. You can see which people clicked on the email. And in every situation, you can even get an alert that says, when somebody clicks on the email, notify me. Uh -huh. Now, in my experience, we're doing this for a couple different of our businesses. Um, we're going to get what's crazy with this first email. We're usually going to get something like a 50 to 60% click rate. Um, really? Yes. That's unheard of. It's it's incredible. Now you don't get that after the first one, but it's because you're talking to them and you got to send it to them in real time and like, okay, hey, I just sent you that email. So check it, you know. And so again, as long as it's relevant and valuable, then they're going to click on it. When they click on it, guess what you do? You follow up with them, okay? Right. And obviously your educational resource should give you the talking points that you need mm -hmm. to follow up and have that conversation with them. And then from the conversation, you then have your normal sales process and you go into your demo or you go into what your cost analysis or statement analysis or whatever, depending on what you're selling and who you're selling it to. But when we think about campaign marketing, I really, really believe that this is the biggest missed opportunity right now in our industry because of a couple of things, Patty. One is okay. everybody in our industry has decided that telemarketing is worthless now. You know, almost yeah, like, yeah, well, that, that. Yeah. we used to do that. That doesn't work anymore. You could certainly, you could never outsource it. You know, that's, that's just doesn't work anymore. That's actually not true. It does work. You just can't do it the way you used to do it. You can't call people and say, we want to save you money on payment processing. You know, that's a brutal numbers game because nobody's going to say yes. Right. If you call and say, Hey, we designed a free ebook and we want to give it to you. Guess what? You're going to get a lot of people that are going to say yes to that. And, you know, think about this for a second. Imagine, imagine a large processor that has agents all over the country. Well, mm -hmm. if you gave all of your agents, you know, uh, 10, 15, 20 merchants a month where you said, hey, this merchant downloaded this ebook Go about right. whatever, right? And we told them that we'd have somebody stop by and follow up, right? Are they going to get more sales? Yeah, those agents are going to stop in. And as long as it was a good ebook that added value, that was a good piece of content, the people are going to say, wow, that's fantastic. You know, um, if you really want to go over the top and you want to make a lot of money on this strategy, then you do a podcast. You know, you start a, like I mentioned other uh, recent ones, you know, we, we have a podcast for self-storage property owners right now for our mm -hmm. software. And every week when all the people, we have thousands of email addresses, when they click that link, well, that notifies us and we call them, hey, hope you're enjoying our podcast. We'd love to do a free demo for you, right? So that's where you start building the top-down funnel um, you know, into this. And so telemarketing can still work if you use the strategy, right? Um, but right. the other thing is, you know, for salespeople, it's very 
challenging right now to get out in the field and just have these initial conversations. If you give the salespeople something that they can talk to people about, that's going to give a positive impression and a, a good feeling to the merchant, it's just going to be much, much more effective and get you off to a better start. So I, I agree. I mean, it has everything to do with with presentation. I mean, it does. It does. Yeah. And, yeah. and you got to add value. But, you know, I would really challenge our listeners. If you're an individual agent, you know, you may need to partner with your payment processing company to get this type of content. Go to Upwork.com, hire writers, hire or you designers. Can, or you could hire me. You hire Patty Murphy. What's your <laughs> What's your website, Patty? I know you just have a new uh, one, don't you? Yeah, I do. I have a brand new website. It's proscribes, P-R-O-S-C-R-I-B-E-S dot net. Proscribes.net. Um, I'm happy to to help people with their marketing. I love it. Stuff. I love it. And that's what you, the problem, the, the biggest challenge with this is getting the right written content right. that's relevant and valuable. Um, and so that's something you can work with Patty on because you need somebody who's an expert in the payments industry to write this up. Right. Then go to Upwork to get your graphic designer if you're a small shop. If you're you know, a larger company, have your team do it, design it and make it available. Give your team the resources they need to be able to start conversations, not with, hey, can you give me some time to do a demo? Yeah. But yeah. can I give you some valuable content? And I just think it's going to go a lot better for you. That's excellent advice. Thank you, James. This is the Insider's Report with Patty Murphy, brought to you by The Green Sheet. For nearly 40 years, The Green Sheet has been the go-to source for news, analysis, and educational tools that empower and connect payments professionals. If you're not reading The Green Sheet already, check it out on the web today at www.greensheet.com. PayPal is announcing a new, has announced a new stablecoin, but it's going to face some headwinds. Really? I didn't uh, hear about this. I thought you were about to say about the new CEO, because didn't they, I think... Uh, Discover and it, PayPal just changed CEOs. I was like, oh, I thought we were about to hear about that. Oh, no, no, no. I've been waiting for Schumann to leave for a while. He keeps saying he will, but. <laughs> right, right. So that was kind of old news to you, I guess. Yeah, right? yeah. Well, I'm sorry. Well, we can, we can touch on. We can go on, back on that uh, another time. Yeah. Right. So. Another time. But what I wanted <laughs> to talk about this week is how PayPal is trying to dig deeper into the world of crypto. Okay. Um, Very interesting. With a stable coin that it's calling PayPal USD. Oh, now, wow. Okay. Now, just in case people out there don't know, a stable coin is basically crypto. It's a crypto token um, whose monetary value is pegged to a stable asset like the US dollar. Hmm. Um, so PayPal customers already can buy, sell, and transfer select cryptocurrencies using their PayPal wallets. And they can even pay with crypto. We've talked to a few people about that. But now it wants to, to pay you know, customers to purchase these PayPal USD tokens, um, as well as convert any cryptocurrency into PayPal USD, transfer PayPal USD to comparable external wallets, send P2P payments using it, um, or fund purchases. But here's the problem. Federal regulators don't like the idea of big tech companies getting into crypto. Now, you may recall that back in 2019, when Meta was Facebook, uh, it had a plan to launch a, launch a stable coin called Libra yep. um, until regulators balked at that, you know. Um, hmm. And this time, within days of PayPal announcing this new stable coin, the Fed issued a supervisory letter to all the banks in its jurisdiction, informing them um, that they have to get supervisory permission um, to get involved in the stablecoin 
in any kind of stable coin business. Wow. So that means that the bank that, you know, PayPal's working with, it's Paxos, technically has to get permission to do this with PayPal. And there's one other problem about this company, Paxos. Um, it's being investigated by the SEC and the New York Department of Financial Services uh, wow. over its relationship with uh, Binance. Is that how you pronounce that? Binance? Binance, yeah. Binance, yeah. Which, of course, made headlines earlier this year, um, you know, for operating as an unregistered securities exchange. Right. And then there's Congress. The day after PayPal announced this, Representative Maxine Waters, who's the ranking Democrat on the House Banking Committee, used to chair it, said she is, quote, deeply concerned about PayPal launching a stablecoin absent federal regulatory a federal regulatory framework. Now, the U.S. House actually has been working on that, and they passed a bill called the Clarity for Payment Stablecoins Act of 2023. Wow. Um, okay. And that was approved by the Banking Committee, still has to be approved by the full House, but that's a start. Hmm. Um, and the bill, but the bill does call for bank-like regulation of non-bank issuers of stablecoins. Uh, with you know state regulators being the primary regulator and the Fed stepping in for what they call exigent circumstances. Uh, sure. Yeah, I wonder. I, I wonder that what term. that. Yeah, I, do, I always do too because because nobody knows what it means, right? Nobody knows what it means. <laughs> it means whenever they want to step in, they're going to whatever step they in. want. Exactly. Uh, so this bill, though, it, it's an amalgam of about five other bills on stable coins. So the vote by the committee. Um, you know, was pretty important. It was a pretty much along party lines, but uh, we'll see what's going on. Um, PayPal said in a statement that it's positioned this new stablecoin as something of an educational product. Hmm. Quote, PayPal is focused on increasing consumer and merchant comprehension of cryptocurrencies, stablecoins, and central bank digital currencies while working closely with regulators as, as the industry evolves. Hmm. Wow. So well, it'll be very, very interesting to see how this uh, shapes up. I, well, it's funny because when you were first saying, and I didn't know know about any of this, but when you were first describing it, I was thinking, wow, that is like a perfect, you know, PayPal is perfect, perfect for creating a stable coin. I mean, that's kind of what they are anyway. Now, if mm -hmm. you think about it, and, and I mean, not from a crypto perspective, but no. as far as a value proposition, but from a wallet perspective, yeah, that's how they've kind of been for the, they've kind of been the stable coin for the internet for years, yeah, in, in a weird yeah. way. Um, and so that's a sounds like a really good fit for them if they can just get it through regulations. Just get it through <laughs> regulations, you know, if they can yeah. somehow figure out a way to get this house bill over to the Senate, right? You know, right. But, you know. We will see. Uh, you know, uh, I've watched um, grass grow faster than lawmakers make laws. But. <laughs> no, no doubt about that. That's for sure. Yeah. So, well, definitely keep us in the loop. It'll be interesting to see how it goes. Sure so. thing, Jim. Thank you for listening to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Whether you are an industry veteran, processing executive, or just trying to learn about the payment space, we appreciate your time. The Merchant Sales Podcast is a joint production of Greensheet.com and CCSalesPro.com. And we hope you will tune in next week for more information and tips on building your merchant services business.